Matthew chapter 2. It is so good. Christmas season. Uh, love this season. I'm particularly blessed this morning is that we have our, our kids and grandkids with us. My daughter Jen, son-in-law Jordan are here. Asher, Justice, and Aliyah, I assume, are in the red room, so having a good time. So what a blessing to have them um, with us. And we've got the whole family. We've got all our kids together and grandkids, so we're blessed. What a beautiful time of year this is. Well, okay, so we are in a series called The Wonder of Christmas, and we have looked at the waiting of Christmas and the worship of Christmas. And now, this morning, we're going to consider the weeping of Christmas. Um, and, and we're just going to pick the account up where we left off last week. We left off with the Magi traveling to following the star to Jesus and uh, to worship him. And now we come to verse 13, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Let's read this and then let's pause in prayer. Now, when they had departed, that is the wise men, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Let's pray together. Father, this is certainly one of the more difficult passages of the Christmas season. And we come, Lord, uh, I pray that our hearts are, are sobered by this, but also, Lord, would we take something very precious home with us today from your word. Father, I pray that you will speak to our hearts by the Spirit of God what you have for us from this, this account. We call upon your name, Lord. Minister hope. Even in the darkest times, we pray. Because that's what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Herod was a cruel and insecure king. In fact, he was so concerned and fearful that someone might take the throne from him, he actually killed three of his own sons because he thought that they might rise up and usurp his his rulership. I cannot even fathom the depth of depravity 
that it would take or the, the idolatry of a man to think that a throne is worth enough to kill your own sons. So, but that's who Herod was. So when he heard from the wise men that a baby had been born in Jerusalem, that this baby was the king of Jews, he was deeply disturbed and he felt his throne threatened. And so, and he was furious when the wise men didn't come back to him to tell him where this baby was. So he sent his soldiers and, and Matthew says they killed all the male children two and under in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region. We don't know how many children that are, that, that would be, but we know that this was a horrendous, horrific, uh, just a, a cruel act on Herod's part. The, 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 the cruelty of that night is captured in Matthew's Christmas account. This is a part of the Christmas account and how horrible it must have been to hear the sound of mothers screaming and that sound filling the night as their sons were ripped from them and killed right in front of them. And then their screaming was replaced with inconsolable weeping. And Matthew sees this as a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But what we have here, we get, we get the passage, weeping and loud lamentations. We get that there's tears that, that can't be consoled. We get the pain. We can see why Matthew connects this prophecy to the tragic events that are going on in Bethlehem. But we do have questions of this text if we, if we spend a little time with it. There are questions that come to us. Why does the prophecy say that the voice of weeping was in Ramah when this happens in Bethlehem? Why is it that Rachel's weeping is heard? How does this prophecy about Rachel and Ramah connect and apply to the murder of the innocents in Bethlehem? Well, to understand it better, we need to go back to Genesis, back in time, to the point when Abraham's son, grandson, Jacob, falls in love with a beautiful woman named Rachel. And you probably know the story. He worked seven years in order to win her hand in marriage. But her father is a crafty man. And I don't know the logistics of this, but somehow he was able to trick Jacob so that Jacob ended up marrying his older daughter, Leah. And so Jacob, and what a shock that must have been. So Jacob ends up marrying Leah, and then Laban gives Rachel's hand to Jacob as well. So what we have here is the original sister's wives, where Rachel and Leah 
are married to the same man and what occurs, not surprisingly, is an unhealthy jealousy between them. An unhealthy competition between them. Leah is jealous of Rachel because Jacob loves Rachel. Leah is or feels unloved in this family. But Rachel becomes jealous of Leah because as time goes on, Leah conceives and gives birth to child after child, son after son, until finally she has five sons and one daughter, and Rachel has no children. She is childless. At last, Rachel conceives, and she gives birth to Joseph. And we know the story of Joseph. And actually, Joseph's name means add. So she's already looking forward to the second child with Joseph. And some years later, she conceives again. And at this point, Jacob decides to uproot his family and to travel over 500 miles from Haran, where they were with Laban, and south, they were traveling south to Bethlehem. And when they get to this town called Ramah, which is about 11 miles north of Bethlehem, it's at that point that Rachel goes into labor. And it's a hard labor. And she, as she gives birth to her son, it says she could feel her soul departing. She was dying as she gave birth to this son. And so she names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow, son of my weeping. Rachel knows she's dying and she is weeping because she knows her sons are being torn from her. Not because they're dying, but because she's dying. She will never see the things that she dreamed of seeing. She will never watch her sons grow up into the men that they will become. She will never see them get married. She will never hold her grandchildren in her arms. Rachel is weeping as she sees all that's so important to her torn from her arms. She is a mom whose sons are being torn from her arms And there in Ramah, Rachel wept as only a mother being separated from her children can weep. And it was there in Ramah that Rachel was buried. And then Jacob continued the journey with his family to Bethlehem. That's Rachel's story. Now we fast forward several centuries later to Jeremiah's day and there's another tragic separation going on in the city of Ramah. After Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, after his army laid complete waste to Jerusalem, burning the homes, tearing down the temple, devastating the city completely, Nebuchadnezzar took the best and the brightest young people and decided to take them into exile to Babylon. And the way station where they gathered and were separated 
and put into kind of like categories. The way station for this exile was the city of Rama. And so once again, Rama becomes a place of forever separation. As mothers and parents who are left to rebuild Jerusalem watch their children, their sons and their daughters torn from them and taken into exile, knowing they will never see them again. And Jeremiah hears Rachel's voice weeping. Weeping again. It's the voice of weeping over separation, over those you love being torn from your arms. Rama is a place of separation. It's a place of unimaginable pain and inconsolable loss. Rama is about 11 miles north of Bethlehem, but on the, that night as Herod murders boy after boy, Bethlehem became Rama. After all, Rachel died in Rama with her eyes set for Bethlehem. It became a place of painful separation. The weeping of Christmas. Now, the evil and the horror and the cruelty of this account is very real. The pain, the loss, the devastation is very real. And on one level, there's no way to make sense of it. There's no way to make sense of it. The Bible doesn't give us simplistic answers. History is full. That's not like the first and last time. History is full of cruelty, full of evil, full of injustice. And there's no way to, to wrap it all up and put a bow on it so we understand it all or it can make sense of it. We do know that sin and Satan are real. We do know that Herod was not acting out of God's heart, but of Satan's heart. Satan wanted to murder the Son of God. And so he was acting out of Satan's, out of Satan's heart. Satan is a murderer, Jesus said, from the beginning. The other children were just collateral damage to both a, a devil and a devil's servant who don't care about life, who didn't care. They were just collateral damage. Matthew's understated account of this in no way diminishes the horror or the evil. In fact, he underlines how inconsolable this tragedy was. The weeping is real. The pain is real. The tears are real. The Bible is no stranger to tears. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He wrote the book called Lamentations, the book of weeping. Jesus was called the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And that first Christmas, along with the announcement of good news of great joy, also came bad news with great weeping. Weeping was a part of the Christmas. 
the weeping of Rama, the weeping of separation. The reality is we will all experience our Ramas at some point or another. We will all experience painful separation. And oh, the many forms that takes. But this world is full of, and life is full of Ramas, separations, weeping. It's a part of life. So in a sense, and I know if you came here hoping to hear a really joyful message, you're probably a little disappointed. But in a sense, a very real sense, I'm glad this story is in there, that it is a part of the Christmas story Because Jesus didn't come to deny our Ramas. He came to speak a word of hope into them and to redeem them into something beautiful. They're not beautiful, but what God can do is beautiful. God is able to take. And I don't know how He does this, but He's able to take the evil and the sorrow and the pain and the cruelty of Satan's heart and He's able to redeem it. We see that at the cross. The cross was the act of wickedness on the part of the rulers. And it was also the height of God's love and mercy. And the one doesn't negate the other. But God redeems. So I want to share a couple of things about the redemptively beautiful and powerful things about Rama. That place of weeping and separation. But first, I want to balance this out a little bit emotionally. Okay? Like I kind of want to like, let's come up rare, okay? Um, Because life isn't all sad and it's not all happy, right? Uh, It's not all sad. It's not all happy. Um, And in different personalities lean different ways, but nobody is 100% sad all the time, hopefully, or 100% happy all the time. Uh, I am an optimist at heart. You can ask my wife. I'm generally a happy person. You know, sometimes it actually annoys me when somebody says, how you doing? And I say, I'm doing good. And they're like, but how are you really doing? (laughs) Like, let's go deeper. Well, some days I'm actually really doing good, you know? And, and, and maybe there just isn't any depth, but that's kind of where I am. Um, we do have good days, right? We do have happy days, amen? You, yeah. Uh, I mean, I hope I'm not the only one. As I was working on this message, I felt like I needed to come up for air. So I actually put on uh, Farrell Williams' video, Happy, you know? And watched it. And if you watch the video, there's people clapping and dancing all around as they sing and clap about how happy they are. It's a great song. Happiness has power too. One line is in the song, clap along if you feel, I feel like singing it, that happiness is the truth. I would change that one line. I would rewrite that one line. I would change it to happiness is a truth. It's not the only truth. It's not the truth. Sometimes sadness is a truth too. So when I, when I feel happy, when I'm having a good day, and you say, how you doing? And I say, I'm doing good. That's, uh, that's just where I'm at. But you catch me on a bad day. If I know you well enough and I'm comfortable with you, 
I'll tell you, I'm not doing that well. It's a rough day. It's a rough time. It's a rough season. Here's what's going on. Would you pray with me? So if you are happy this morning, enjoy it. Enjoy it. In spite of this message, enjoy it. If you're happy, smile. Clap along. Sing. But folks, there are going to be years, and maybe some are there now, where happy isn't the word that describes your heart. There could be deep sadness in somebody's heart and life. Holidays can be particularly sad times for people who have experienced some kind of drama, some kind of loss, some kind of separation. And it, it's not just death. It could be friends moving away. It could be a conflict that breaks a, a relationship. It, it could be so many things, a loss of a job, and what am I going to do? And It could be so many things. It could be loneliness. It could be, it could be so many things. And if we think that Christmas is just happy, happy, that joy means you're never sad, we will feel cold and alone and empty in the Christmas season. I'm glad this story, I'm not glad for the story, but I'm glad the Lord was honest to put it in here. Because in that place, the story the Christmas story meets us there too. It meets us in the loneliness. It meets us in the heartache and the loss and the grief. There was weeping that first Christmas as well as joy. So I just want to share two very simple points about this. The first point I want to share is that weeping isn't a contradiction to the joy of Jesus. It's a beautiful part of it. It's a beautiful part of it. In her book, Bittersweet, subtitled How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, Susan Cain tells the story of Peter Doctor. Peter Doctor was a writer of animated stories, and he decided to write a story about emotions. The story was called Inside Out. And he knew he couldn't have the wide range of emotions people feel like, so he decided to animate our emotions in four characters. And uh, the story is the story of an 11-year-old girl named Riley dealing with her emotions as I believe, if I remember the story correctly, they move. And she doesn't have the friends and she doesn't have the support. She's... Peter Doctor wanted to boil her emotions to four characters, but she wanted two characters to be the main protagonists. One would be joy, and the second one he knew would be fear. Because fear can be funny. And he could think of a lot of circumstances where fear could interact in her life in a funny way and have lead to humorous situations. But as Peter Doctor got to the third act of the, of the story, this is the point where the story arc was going to come to where Joy learned a lesson. And what doctor discovered is fear had nothing to teach joy. It's a lengthy story how he arrived at it. But ironically, what he discovered is that sadness 
had something to teach joy. It was sadness that connected with joy. And that is true in our hearts and lives. Sadness connects with joy on a deep level in our heart. Think about the haunting, melancholy. I don't know if you're like this, but I love haunting, melancholic, melancholic melodies. And they often stir far deeper emotions in our hearts than happy tunes do. Like, I love the song Happy, but I couldn't listen to it all the time. I'd go bonkers. And when I put on classical music, boy, if it's a sweeping, haunting melody, I'm there. I'm feeling it. And again, I'm an optimist. I'm, a, yeah, I'm generally happy, but I just love my heart and emotions being swept. If I put on something and it's a lot of noisy, bang-banging and happy, cheerful things, I'm like, that's just noise. You might be different. There's different tastes. But the point is, melancholic melodies, they stir something. They stir a longing. They stir a desire in our heart. A home we've never known, C.S. Lewis talks about. They stir that sense. uh, Give us a glimpse of something our hearts long for that we're not at. We're not there. We don't have it. Sorrow. Tears. Psalm 56.8 says that God puts all our tears in a book. And he collects all our tears in his bottle. It's a poetic way of saying God doesn't forget our sorrow. He doesn't forget our pain. They aren't discarded. They aren't unimportant to God. Because we are precious to God. Our sadness is precious to God too. Now listen, in heaven, there's not going to be sadness. We're going to be like, I don't know how we're going to be able to do it, but we're going to be able to take high octane joy all the time. But I don't think that's going to make heaven shallow. I think there's going to be as many layers and complexities to joy in heaven as there are to our whole emotional uh, range here on this earth. But right now, we can't take, it's it's like breathing pure oxygen. We can't take it. We need some carbon dioxide mixed in. We need some sadness mixed in. We can't take 100% joy all the time. Undiluted. We need sad days. Sadness connects with joy and has something to teach joy. Often it's in sadness that we learn kindness. Often it's in sadness that we learn compassion. We learn a deeper depth of love. Often it's in brokenness that we see our need for a Savior. For Jesus. Jesus came because we have Ramas. We have sadness. Sadness has something to teach our joy. Sadness doesn't contradict the joy that Jesus gives us. It is a beautiful part of it. And along with that, my second point is this. Jesus came so that weeping isn't the last word. Hope is. Joy is. We go to Jeremiah 31, where he quotes, a voice is heard, the voice of Rachel weeping, inconsolable, for her children are no more. But then he goes on in the very next verse, he said, this is what the Lord says. 
Now the Lord is going to speak over the voice of Rachel. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. God says to them, you don't need to weep forever. I don't think this is like a kind of a harsh stop weeping. I think it's more like, don't cry. It's going to be okay. There is hope. There is hope. Where you have weeping now, where you have hopelessness now, there will be hope. The weeping will not be the last voice you hear. You will hear the voice of God speaking hope and joy and weeping no more. Weeping isn't the last word. Hope is. Joy is. Rachel named her son Benoni, son of my sorrows. But Jacob renamed him Benjamin, son of my strength. Rachel only saw sorrow. Jacob felt that sorrow. He felt the pain, but he saw strength. He saw potential. He saw hope. God is the God who brings beauty out of ashes. He is the one. Now listen, ashes represent, ashes does not represent something that's slightly damaged, slightly broken, but I can fix it. Ashes is beyond fixing, beyond repair, beyond recognition. It's just ashes, beyond use, no good. But God is the God who sees those ashes, those burnt, that burnt heart, that destroyed life, that this is, it's over. And he says, I can bring beauty out of that. I see the potential for beauty. What sorrow has reduced to ashes, God can restore to beauty. He can take our regrets and redeem them into beautiful lessons. He can take our sinful mistakes and redeem them into opportunities for grace and forgiveness and compassion for others. Jesus came so that all who believe in him, for them, weeping isn't the last word. Joy is. Weeping may last the night, but joy comes in the morning. The morning is when we enter the presence of God, either because he returns or we go to be with him. Some weeping lasts a season in our lives. And then we move on. And, and we, just, we just move on. But it's got to be said that some sorrows, like the sorrow that Rachel experienced, like the sorrow these mothers in, in, in Rama experienced, where they're separated from their children for the rest of their lives, where Rachel sees all her hopes and dreams burnt to ashes, some sorrows will last the remainder of our days on this earth. We will never fully recover. We will never get over it. We will never move on. We may never laugh like we once did. Now, don't get me wrong, and I've watched... 
I've watched people walk through some very deep valleys and come out with beautiful grace on the other side and walk through them with beautiful grace. But I think if they were here, they would say, it's never the same. You never get over it. You don't want to with some things. There will be some who enter into the presence of God with tears in their eyes. And how precious that the Bible says that God himself will wipe away every tear from their eye. They wouldn't have tears to wipe away unless they had those tears as they entered eternity. So as we close this morning, I want to just encourage you, you know, if there's a situation that's heavy on your heart, sad upon your heart, I want to encourage you, go ahead and weep. Go ahead and weep. The last thing you want to do is say, I can't weep. Paul says, grieve. Not as those who have no hope, but grieve as someone who has hope. So hope changes the nature of grief, but it doesn't take it away. Go ahead and weep. But as you weep, call upon God and ask Him to turn that sorrow into strength. Hold on to the hope that because you believe in Jesus, weeping won't have the last word. Joy will. See, if weeping had the last word, if the, if the final end of all things was, was evil and cruelty and horror and bad and all that stuff, if that was the last word, then there'd be nothing but weeping. There'd be no reason for happiness. But joy coming to the end like this explosion of the sun rising and hope dawning and, and a few years, and that's all 50, 60, 70, 100 years are, is a few years, a few years of pain and sorrow and trial and loss and grief. And I don't understand why this is happening. A few years of that and then dawning into an eternity of joy in the presence of God and every tear wiped away. Joy will swallow up sorrow. Never to be felt again. But until then, hold on to that hope. Weep. But call upon God and God say, I don't understand this, but make, bring beauty out of these ashes. Now listen, some of you might be looking at bridges that you've burned. You're seeing ashes and the ashes, maybe not even all, they're not something you can even put back together. Maybe it's a relationship you've burned. Maybe it's opportunities you've burned. And all you see are ashes. I just want to encourage you, bring those ashes to God and say, God, this is it. This is what I can offer you, ashes. And believe that he can make them into something beautiful. God can. Jesus came. He came that Christmas morning where he was born on earth. He came to be the savior of burnt stones and lives and brokenness and hurt and sin and loss and grief and all of that as well as the joy and the happiness and the beauty and all of that. Jesus came to be our savior. My last thought is this. If there's someone in your life who's in a sad season, they're walking through a loss. And I know you guys are great. But I just want to encourage you. If they're in a season of sadness, a season of loss, a season where they're struggling with things, don't blast them with joy. Don't try to blast them into happiness. 
weep with them. So Paul said in Romans 12, remember we looked at that a few weeks ago, weep with those who weep. Weep with them. Feel their pain with them. Pray with them. Be there with them. Don't try to talk them into joy. By the way, joy can, joy can have deep sadness and still be joy. But don't try to talk them into happy joy. Gently encourage them that God is Emmanuel, God with us. He walks through the valley. Isn't that what David meant in Psalm 23 when he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I don't think he's just talking about death. I think he's talking about darker valleys than death. The, the valley of separation, the valley of, of depth of grief and loss and all the emotions of that valley. I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Just encourage them. God is Emmanuel. Christ is Emmanuel. God with us. Weeping is real, folks. The weeping of Christmas is real. It's a part of the life that God uses. But Jesus came so that weeping isn't the last word. Hope is. Joy is. He is still in the hardest of times. Good news of great joy.